Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, and this week, if you have been paying attention to the news, then you uh, once again know what I'm going to be talking about for at least part of the podcast. We're going to be focusing on the attempted or at least intended kidnapping of the governor of Michigan. And then also I have a pretty long segment about a French collaborator during World War II. All right, like I said, you probably have heard about this if you're the kind of person who is listening to this particular podcast. This week, we saw a series of major arrests and like a sting operation effectively on a militia group operating out of Michigan here in the United States. This group called itself the Wolverine Watchmen. Uh, They appear to have been a relatively small and sort of under-the-radar militia organization. And their plan, starting this uh, summer, like during the height of the Black Lives Matter movement protests that uh, spread throughout the United States and also the world in the summer of 2020, their plan originated online and in various chat groups to kidnap the governor of Michigan, um, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, and to try her for treason, her supposed treason and tyranny before executing her sometime before election day this year in early November. Now, whether or not this group would have even been remotely capable of carrying out such an act is still unclear. The ultimate size of the group and their various affiliations with various other organizations remains uncertain. Um, I'm not going to get into the full nitty gritty of like who all these people were and blah, 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 because there's a fair number of them. And also it doesn't really make any sense to pay particular attention to these individual dudes, uh, especially because it seems as if their careers as far right militants are over. Right. But their plan is unfortunately can't really be of any surprise to us. Um, We have to have been expecting this kind of activity from far right militias for the last several years. Uh, And the fact that they were thwarted before they were able to even attempt to carry out any of this kind of activity uh, is good news, uh, but it also uh, reminds us of the degree to which uh, organizations like the FBI, which spearheaded this particular organ, uh, this particular investigation, um, the degree to which they have really surveillance on domestic groups on lockdown. Now, the makeup of this group, uh, the Wolverine Watchmen, should be of no surprise to you if you're a listener to this podcast. They were young, disaffected white men. Um, This is precisely the kind of people who join an organization like this. Now, I've been using and commentary about this group has been using a particular word to refer to them. People call them a militia. In the media, there's been a fair amount of, you know, disagreement and argument about whether or not this word should be used. You know, maybe we should just say terrorist, uh, like a lot of people suggest. Um, I and many other commentators uh, on the far right would push against that that kind of rhetoric, primarily because it's more helpful to think about terrorism on, on a, like, political science analytical level. It's more helpful to think about terrorism as a tactic that particular types of groups employ. Calling someone a terrorist is about as useful as calling someone a bomber or a shooter. That's what they did, but the kind of organization that they belong to could be of many different ideological stripes, right? They could want very different things. They could try to get them in various ways, one of which or some of which might be violent, but not necessarily all of them, right? 
Specifically, what the word militia refers to, and why it's particularly useful in this case, is that these groups have a have a heritage, unfortunately, um, in United States politics, going back to the reformation of the extreme right after the 1960s and 70s. Uh, specifically, these types of groups are anti-government in a sort of like anarcho-libertarian way. Um, they don't want the government to interfere with their lives in almost any capacity, but they do want the government to interfere with our civil is, is they want the government to disrupt civil unrest. They don't want people to be able to protest specifically. They don't want people of color to be able to protest. They don't like socialism. Uh, they don't like any type of popular manifestation. They don't want any of that stuff. So they want the government to crack down on that kind of thing. Um, but they don't want government regulation of businesses or their private lives in any serious way. Uh, so militia in this sense is referring to the group's heritage as a part of like anti-government, um, you know, anti-quote interference, hyper-libertarian type of ideology that comes out of the 60s and 70s, um, but also was really big in the 90s and 2000s and has a number of other manifestations um, like the, um, the Bundy gang, if you remember those people from like Idaho and the American West, like the far West, uh, that, you know, wanted to be able to have their cattle graze on federal land, which wasn't allowed. Um, people like sovereign citizens, you know, this is that kind of ideology. Now, these groups are virulently pro second amendment. And this is where the word militia comes from. You know, the, the wording of the second amendment in the United States constitution a well-regulated militia being necessary, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, that's why they call themselves that. Of course, legally, uh, these militias in the Constitution refer to things like the various state national guards, right? Uh, that's what they mean. Um, but for these groups, they, they think about them more as like individual citizens taking it upon themselves to protect the homeland, right? To protect their families. That's what they're thinking they're doing. Now, this kind of blatant intent to harm or kidnap or otherwise assault sitting Democratic political officials is something that we are unfortunately going to have to get used to. Although before the last you know, five or six years, it was relatively unprecedented and very small. Unfortunately, this kind of threat is not new now. Um, and it's something that we're going to have to be living with no matter who wins in November. Similar threats have been made openly uh, against uh, various members of Congress, including Ocasio-Cortez and Congressperson Omar. Um, unfortunately, this kind of partisan violence, or at least in this case, attempted partisan violence is something that we need to come to expect. And equally, unfortunately, in this case, we need to expect local law enforcement to oftentimes be on the side of the extreme right-wing people who are trying to carry out this kind of violence. It's important to note, again, that it was the federal government that spearheaded the thwarting of this plot. Part of that is just because like, that's one of the purviews of the federal government and of the FBI is to try to stop domestic terrorist plots. But it's also because you need to expect local police and sheriffs to, you know, at the very least, kind of turn a blind eye, kind of be sympathetic to this kind of shit. Unfortunately, 
that's in all of our futures and we need to be prepared for it. All right, this week's See You in Hell is a man named Joseph Darnall. Uh, he is French, and I apologize for my inability to pronounce French names. Uh, Darnall was a French soldier uh, born in the 19th century. He served in the French military during the First World War, uh, so he was a military veteran. Between the wars, he joined various fascist paramilitary organizations and other far-right groups, uh, including the infamous Action Francois, uh, which is an important through line from old-time sort of monarchist, as in like people who wanted to restore the monarchy, reactionaries uh, in French 19th century politics to modern fascists, uh, both modern in as in like during the 20th century and modern as in in the present day. All right, so Donald is a relatively normal uh, fascist militant type guy, right? He's a military veteran of World War I. He joined a whole panoply of various organizations between the wars. He returns to the military in World War II, where he is stationed at the Maginot Line. Of course, uh, for those of you who paid attention in history class, you know that the German military overran the French military in World War II in what was at the time and still today, a pretty surprising route and victory. Uh, this was not what most people expected to happen, um, but it played a big part in the establishment of the mythos of like, you know, German indomitability and Hitler's power, and also the, the mythos that attracted a lot of people to fascism at that period of time. So anyway, uh, Thernand's military has been defeated, uh, and he goes back into, you know, relatively civilian life in occupied France. But unlike uh, some people, because he's a fascist, he became something called a collaborator. Uh, for those of you who haven't heard the term before, a collaborator is somebody who willingly cooperates with an invading or occupying military. Often specifically, especially in the context of World War II, a collaborator refers to somebody who cooperates with the Germans uh, or with the Italians, but, but pretty much primarily the Germans. Um, this is somebody who works with fascists in order to do their dirty work, in order to ease their work in occupying a place. Collaborators are the domestic officials who assisted Nazis in administrating occupying territories, basically. Uh, everything from daily operations, just like being people who spoke the local language and maybe also some German so that they could coordinate um, everything from that to being in charge of telling Germans where there were Jewish people to remove for um, the Holocaust. Now, Darnot was a particular type of collaborator. He wasn't just some official who kept at his post. He wasn't just, you know, some guy who is kind of sympathetic to the Nazi line, he himself alone founded a separate fascist organization called the Service Théodère Légionnaire, uh, which is a pro-fascist, pro-Nazi independent militia in occupied France. Um, it, quickly, it was quickly swept up uh, by government co-optation by Vichy France, um, by the prime minister of Vichy France and was taken into fully domestic service. It became a semi-official paramilitary organization of the state. And its job was to police and investigate the French resistance. And so what these people were, were 
counterinsurgency specialists, basically. Uh, they helped the Germans identify, find, try, execute, torture, question members of the French resistance or people suspected of being involved in the resistance. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the resistance, quote unquote, um, before 2016 uh, did not mean people who just sort of don't like Donald Trump or something like that. Um, the resistance in the context of the Vichy occupation government meant French citizens who participated in terrorist acts against um, the German-occupied northern France or against the Vichy government in southern France. Um, as a part of this anti-resistance fighting group, uh, Darnon was pretty successful. You know, he, he, he did pretty well for himself. He was the effective leader of a group of militia, uh, you know, tens of thousands of French people. They successfully helped the Germans stop a lot of resistance movements and built a name for themselves uh, as a fascist paramilitary of all their own. Part of the reward for this kind of service to the Nazi party and to the interests of fascism internationally was that Darnon and several of the other leaders of the um, Service d'Order Légionnaire became SS officers. Uh, I've talked about the SS before. This is the official paramilitary branch of the Nazi party in Germany. Uh, this is something that was a reward for a series of collaborators from France to Romania to occupied Soviet territories. So this is sort of the height of Darnon's uh, fascist career. He's the leader of a small paramilitary organization in France. He's part of the SS. Fortunately for us, unfortunately for him, History was not on his side. Uh, in the mid-40s, he has to flee uh, from France to Germany after the Allied invasion of France, uh, which was, of course, very successful, and was then followed by the Allied invasion of Germany from both the West and primarily the East, of course, uh, by the Soviet Union. Uh, as the Allied forces advance in Germany, Donald flees again, uh, this time to Italy, Allied-occupied Italy, trying to lay low, um, he fails. He is captured by uh, British officers who identify him as a collaborator and traitor. Uh, and he is extradited back to France, where he is executed by firing squad this week, October 10th, 1945. So, Joseph Darnon, uh, we'll see you in hell. All right. Everybody, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, uh, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson. I'd like to thank Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro and outro and graphics. And I'll talk to you next week. Sneak peek, next week is the anniversary of the Nuremberg trials. Uh, so we have a lot of fascists to be glad are dead. All right, I'll talk to you next week.